Thank you, choir and praise team. This past week, we had a major uh, presidential election that ended up being surprising in a number of ways. Uh, one thing is for sure, it will go down as a huge day in American political history. If you think about it, November the 8th, 2016 was a day that occupied a lot of people's time, energy, money, and conversation long before that day ever came to pass. Actually, people prepared for the day using calendars and timelines and organizing several years before we ever got to last Tuesday. Because big days like that call for getting everything ready. And so the day came and the day went. And many decisions were made in relationship to it. In some ways, it was a day that occupied all of the civilized world, not just our country, but the entire planet, the civilized planet, the people that are connected in any way technologically, organized nations, peoples. They were looking at the election here last Tuesday. I've thought about how this day so occupied our country as though everything hung upon what happened last Tuesday, which it did not. But there is a greater day coming that does not garner as much attention, even though everything does literally hang upon it. And I want to talk to you today about that particular day upon which everything hangs in the balance. And so as you have your, if you have your Bibles this morning, I want to invite you to uh, open them with me to the book of Acts chapter 17 and the book of Revelation chapter 20 in a message I've entitled, The Day, The Day, because I want us to begin to think about that particular day and let it become central in our thinking because it's important that we do so. Acts 17 verses 29 through 34. Paul here is speaking in the city of Athens, Greece, and toward the end of the message that is recorded here by Luke, Paul says, therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. And then in the book of Revelation, chapter 20, verses 11 through 15, John the Apostle, in his vision, writes, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. The earth and the heavens fled from his presence, and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. 
the sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. Now, our culture still talks about Jesus. If you'll listen, you'll hear various views about Jesus expressed, and you'll hear a lot of ignorance expressed about Jesus. You'll hear a lot of that ignorance coming up in the next month or so as we get close to Christmas. You'll read about Jesus and some ignorant articles that will be written. The talk about Jesus will ramp up. In all the ways Jesus talk about Jesus, however, one thing that is not mentioned in the talk of baby Jesus or in the talk of Jesus being our friend or Jesus loves me as we've been focusing upon in the music today or Jesus loves me unconditionally by which I think people mean Jesus accepts me unconditionally which is not true. One thing that is not mentioned is that someday I will face Jesus Christ as my judge. Jesus as judge. That thought is one that Paul brings up as he speaks to the Greek intellectuals in his brief visit to Athens, and I want to utilize that passage to build upon what I want to talk to you about today, again in a message entitled, The Day. First of all, as Paul speaks to these men on the hill, and there's a picture of the hill on the screen there, he has traveled to the ancient city of Athens. He doesn't stay in Athens very long. While Athens had been defeated by the Romans, and so it was under the domination of the Romans militarily and politically, Athens still had great intellectual sway. It basically shaped the Romans through its intellectual sway. It was the Greek language that our New Testament was written in, which was the business language like English is today of the day. It's one of the reasons the gospel spread so quickly. So still a very, a very uh, intellectually rooted city. Paul goes there and he begins to talk about the Lord and he is invited to go up to that hill known as the Areopagus. Luke uses the word actually in the passage there in in the book of Acts. It means the Ares rock. The Roman name attached to it, it became known as the Mars Hill in relationship to the Roman God. So Paul is invited to go up the steps to speak to the uh, intellectuals of the day there in the city As he begins to talk to them, they are alluding to what he's been talking about, and they call him a seed picker. That is, they say this guy kind of puts together, cobbles together a view. They didn't have a lot of respect for him as a philosopher. And so Paul goes to speak to them on the hill, and he says to them that while they have altars and idols built to many different gods, and even have one to an unknown god, Paul says you're dwelling in ignorance, but it is willful ignorance of the one true God. And while in the past he has been patient with that, no longer will he be patient with such willful ignorance that is no longer acceptable. You cannot hide behind that anymore because God has acted in history not far from you in the city of Jerusalem. God has made himself plainly known now in the person of Jesus. So it is not Paul who has the weaker worldview. 
It is they who have the weaker worldview. They dwell in darkened ignorance in light of the fact that Jesus Christ has come into history to die for men's sins. And in his resurrection, his sacrifice has been validated. God raised him from the dead. And he's been raised from the dead in such a way that Paul says, before him now every person must bow. And a day has been appointed now by God, validated by this resurrection, that there will come a day of judgment, a day of justice, and the judge will be this resurrected Jesus Christ. And all people will appear before him on a sure day as their judge. So Paul begins saying there's a sure day coming in light of Jesus who has come, lived, died, rose again. Now Paul in this passage says that this day is an appointed day. We don't know yet when that day will be. We don't know exactly when it's going to come. But it is a day that is as sure as the resurrection. The day has been set for the court to be held. The judge has been appointed who will be ruling over the court. These silly dead idols that they have been following and trying to placate, Paul says these are nothing to fear. Nothing about them you should be concerned about. But this man who came in time from eternity and returned to heaven again is one about whom you should have specific concern. For we all, the whole world, has a coming appointment with him. We have a day in a court and he'll be the one on the bench. And you know, that day ought to be the greatest day about which you and I are ever concerned as we live on this planet. Much more so than the day that came this past Tuesday. You remember in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 10 in verses 26 through 28. We hear Jesus speaking. Talking to folks about not being concerned about what people can do to them in persecution. As they follow Jesus. And Jesus said in Matthew 10, 26, So do not be afraid of them. For there is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed or hidden that will not be made known. What I tell you in the dark, speak in the daylight. What is whispered in your ear, proclaim from the roofs. Do not be afraid of those who killed the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. That is Jesus. Have fear, have concern, have holy reverence for the one who can destroy both body and soul in hell. Now while this is a universal appointment that is coming, we must be reminded that it really is an individual appointment. Do you really believe this? That you as an individual and I as an individual someday will stand before Jesus Christ as judge. I won't stand before him as part of an earthly family or, you know, as part of a, being a husband or a dad or a pastor. I'll appear before him as, as me, Don Cox. Do you believe that? That every one of us will stand before him. And in that meeting, it really... It's a significant meeting because there will be considered matters of eternal destiny. That's what will be in play. That's child's play, what happened last Tuesday, compared to this day that's going to come for all of us. 
The Bible says in Hebrews 9, 27, that it is appointed unto man once to die, and after this, the judgment. Just as sure as you're going to die, you're going to stand before Jesus Christ as judge. You know, in the election this past week, almost half of the eligible voters in the United States did not vote. There are 231,556,622 people that are eligible to vote. Some of those may be dead, I don't know, but they're eligible to vote. And probably some of them did last week. But you know that 46% or 106 plus million people did not vote. Think about that. Did not choose to vote. But in this meeting that is coming for all of us, no one can choose to opt out of this appointment. Just as you did not choose to be born on this planet, you cannot choose to not go before Jesus Christ as your judge. Now while the world goes on scoffing about this coming day, as we read in 2 Peter 3, 1 through 10, the world scoffs about what's going to unfold. Where is this day that is coming? The world's been going on as it always has been. But one who is wise will not scoff at that day. One who looks at the words of Jesus and the work of Jesus, particularly in his resurrection, will take very seriously this coming day that all of us have to go through. You know, all through my ministry, I've been involved in leading weddings. And over the years, I've come to learn that many young women have been planning their wedding day since they were little girls. There's even a piece of furniture that um, many families used to have, some still may, that they use in preparation for this day. It is called a hope chest. And there's one that tells you how to assemble and put together a hope chest. Where I grew up, they were often called cedar chests because they were usually made of cedar. I used to remember going into my grandmother's bedroom and opening that chest and you could smell the cedar. They were made of cedar because cedar would repel the insects and the things that might seek to damage what was in there. But all throughout the years, this hope chest is filled with linens, clothing, silverware, other valuables, items for the bride to prepare for the big day and the ensuing marriage. It's a preparation chest. And you know, we know, don't we, that big days like that call for preparation. They really, really do. Just as the day this past Tuesday called for great preparation, meticulous preparation. But in understanding this sure day, we are to be reminded that we should prepare more meticulously than for any day that we'll ever observe on this planet for that day that's going to come. It is sure. Now, if you really believe that this is a sure day, and you really come to embrace that this is going to take place in my life, it cannot help but impact you. In this room right now on this day, if you believe this is a sure day, it cannot help but impact you. But that's one of the big questions you've got to answer for yourself. Is this day really coming? Has Jesus Christ risen from the dead? Look at that. Investigate it. And if he has, which he has, The Bible says, just as sure as he rose from the dead, that day is coming. It's a sure day. 
So as we think about being assured day, when it does come, Paul reminds us next that on this day when we go before Jesus the judge, it's going to be a day of justice, a just day. Paul says, go back if you would to the book of Acts chapter 17 where he's talking about appearing before Jesus. He says in verse 31 of Acts 17, for he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by or through the man, that is Jesus, he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. The Williams translation says he will justly judge the world through a man whom he has appointed, Jesus. So what does this mean to say that he will justly judge? Well, we could unpack it in various ways, but at the core it means that the perfect one, that is Jesus, who is the perfect standard, who knows all, sees all. Remember he said there is nothing hidden that will not be uncovered, as we read earlier. The one who controls all will treat each person justly. No one will be able to say on this day that there was a miscarriage of justice in my life or God got it wrong. No one will say they were treated unfairly or in a way that they do not deserve. It won't be like the instant replay who overturns a a moment in time as we saw yesterday in the Clemson ball game. Right? There won't be any uh, replay that turns events around in a particular way or in other ball games that took place. No, it, it's all going to be done justly one time right there. You know, in this world, sometimes there are great miscarriages of justice. I read recently the story of Jennifer Thompson and Ronald Cotton in a message that I'm preparing on the issue of forgiveness. I'm going to be preaching a message in the near future on The question, am I to forgive unconditionally? Or is forgiveness conditional? And we're going to explore that. And in reading and researching that topic, I came across the story of Jennifer Thompson and Ronald Cotton. It proves to be a wonderful story in the end. And there they are sitting together. And I don't want to give away what happened afterward. But in 1984... A man broke into Jennifer Cotton's apartment, held a knife to her throat, and raped her. And during the ordeal, Jennifer, she studied the man's face and tried to look at things upon his skin, markings she could identify later because she was determined that this man was going to go to prison and rot in jail. A few days after what happened to her, the police showed her some photographs. She picked out an assailant, and then further identified him in a police lineup. She testified to it in court. Ronald Cotton was the man who attacked her. And based upon that, Ronald Cotton was sentenced to prison. Two years later, he came up for a retrial, and during the retrial, another suspect was introduced as possibly the one who did this. But again, I know Jennifer testified that no, it was Ronald Cotton who did this, and so he was convicted again in that sense, and he was sent back to prison. This time, 11 years went by. Jennifer got married. She had triplets. Everything was going on in life. One day, she was approached by the authorities because technology had caught up from eyewitness testimony to DNA, and they said, can we have a blood sample so we can test what was uh, collected on that day to check for DNA? And so she gave the blood sample 
And after a few days, a knock came on her door. It was the DA and a police detective, and they delivered the news that the DNA was not a match. Ronald Cotton was not the man who attacked her, though he had been in prison 13 years for it. The man who actually raped her was Bobby Poole, a man who two years before, or 11 years before, when it came back up to court, and he was the other man brought up, she said, no, it wasn't him, it was Ronald who raped me. And so she got it wrong. And there was a great miscarriage of justice. And in another message, I will tell you the rest of the story. But we need to be reminded today that at the bar of God, there will be pure justice. That is, untainted justice. And one of the reasons for that is that this God sees all, and before Him everything shall be laid bare. You remember in Paul's words in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 5, the Apostle Paul, the same one who's speaking on Mars Hill, he says that therefore judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of the heart. And at that time, each will receive their praise from God. Matthew 12, 36, Jesus talks about the fact that our, our words reveal our, our hearts and our words will reveal our hearts. Nothing will be hidden. You know, during the presidential campaign, some of the WikiLeaks of emails from one campaign showed how people in a particular campaign on the Democrat side really felt about people in groups that they said publicly they were for and they were defending and they were on their side and they respected their leaders. Uh, WikiLeaks showed that no, in private, they held the leaders in disdain. They sought to undercut them and they, they acted differently than they spoke publicly. The Bible reminds us that at the bar of God, all incongruities, all public and private thoughts will be brought together to expose what really is in each heart and what has been done in each life. I want to ask you this morning, are you ready for that day? It is a sure day, as sure as Jesus rose from the dead, as sure as you're going to die someday and I'm going to die, it is a just day in which we will be judged justly. It is a day in which we will appear before Jesus as judge. Are you ready for that day? In just the past days, really looking at your life, your words, your private thoughts, are you ready for this coming day of exacting justice? And you know, there is really only one way you and I can ultimately prepare for this day. And I want to invite you to think through the glory of the gospel in light of the coming day, and the final point I want to talk about this morning, and that is it's going to be a dividing day. It's a sure day, it's going to be a just day, it's going to be a dividing day, but there's some wonderful news about this day that you and I can rest in if we're prepared for it. So let me talk with you about that for just a few moments. As we look at Paul's message, and we have only a summary of his message here in Luke, we see again that the center of this day is wrapped up in the person of Jesus. Go back to that passage again in the book of Acts chapter 17. So he's speaking here to these men on Mars Hill and women as well because we see a woman that ultimately gives her life to Christ. 
And he says in verse 31, he has set a day when he would judge the world with justice by or through the man, this man he has appointed. It's all wrapped up with Jesus. And Paul says here in this same passage that in relationship to Jesus, that we're to be a people who repent. God has overlooked such ignorance. Look at verse 30. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance. But now, now what? In light of Jesus. In light of Jesus coming. He commands all people everywhere to repent. Why is it necessary that we repent? Because a day is coming. So here he's talking about the preparation for that day. And it's tied up with this person of Jesus and this idea of repentance. The point is that you and I cannot think about this day rightly without thinking of the life and the work of Jesus and his death and what Paul alludes to here, the resurrection. Now, we don't know how much detail the Apostle Paul went into on uh, the matter on this particular day with them. We have a summary here, most likely. But as he knew the words of Jesus, Paul knew that this day was going to be a dividing day for humanity in correlation to how each person was related to Jesus. These are Jesus' words. Jesus himself had made this point clear. Jesus, who will be the presiding judge, has said that on this day, there's going to be a day of division. Paul knew about this. He knew the words of Jesus. We don't know if he went into that detail or if he got to do that on Mars Hill because Luke gives us a summary of the message, and then we see the meeting kind of blows up when he talks about the resurrection. But if Paul had the opportunity to tell us the full view, he would draw upon Jesus' words to remind us this is going to be a dividing day, and I want you to turn to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 25, where we read the words of Jesus about this day being a day of division. Here in Matthew 25, Jesus is focusing upon coming judgment and preparation for it. So he tells the story of the ten virgins, half being ready, half not, for when he comes back. He tells the story of the man going on a journey and giving his servants bags of gold. And how did they invest it? What did they do with it? Were they responsible in light of the fact they were going to have to stand before God someday for how they handled what he had given to them? And then we come down to verse 31 where Jesus talks about this day of division. Matthew 25, 31, Jesus said, When the Son of Man comes in His glory, and all the, nation, uh, and all the angels with Him, He will sit on His glorious throne. Here Jesus is telling us, I'm going to be the judge. All the nations will be gathered before Him. And he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. But then skip down to verse 41 about those on his left, the ones that he categorizes as the goats. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. I don't know of any more sobering words in all of the Bible. That there is a day coming, it is a sure day, it is a day of justice, 
He is going to be sitting on the throne, and in his own words, he says, on that day, I'm going to separate the people as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And to the sheep, I'm going to say, come in and receive your inheritance, eternal life. But to the goats, I'm going to say, depart from me. This is Jesus. You either have to come to the point in your life of accepting Jesus' words or not. And if you don't want to accept these words about Jesus and what he said, don't accept any other words. That he's the Savior. Or anything else about him. It all hangs together. And Jesus says here there's going to be this separation. Sobering words. And this is the same message we find reinforced through the New Testament. It's the same idea we find in the words of John the Apostle. If you go to that passage in Revelation 20 that we read earlier in the beginning of the message. Where John the Apostle, one of Jesus' closest companions, he writes of this separation in terms of books being opened. And the separation that takes place in relationship to what is found in the books. Revelation 20 and verse 11. I saw a great white throne and on it him who was seated and the earth and the heavens fled from his presence. No place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small. That is every person, rich, poor, famous, infamous, those that are successful, those who are not in the eyes of this world, standing before the throne. And then he says books were opened. But then notice he says another book was opened, which is the what? Book of life. And then he talks about judgment being taken according to the, what's written in the books that are there. Down in verse 15 he says, anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. That is separation. Some to glory, some to the lake of fire. So on this day when this division takes place, there is no going back. It is a day of fixed and final judgment. And all of us will be on one side or the other. Every one of us in this room on that day will be on one side or the other. Which side are you going to be on? Jesus will be the judge of that. And on one side is eternal separation from God. On the other is the glorious promise of dwelling with God forever. And so with so much on the line, it really is imperative that we make preparation for that day. And allow me, as I wrap this up now, to just talk for a moment about this dividing day and the two groups before Jesus and how you can make preparation. Now, some of you went to the polls this past week and you voted and you got a little sticker that said what? I voted. I participated. Well, there's going to come a day someday before the Lord and you're going to participate. And you're either going to go away with a sticker of says goat <laughs> or sticker that says sheep and everything hangs upon that in all seriousness so let's look at these two groups the goats as Jesus calls them he's using the analogy of a shepherd these are the ones who go into eternal separation you know, when the Bible says that Jesus will deal justly with every person, this does not mean that every person will receive the justice they deserve. If we all got justice as we deserve, we all would be goats. And we all would go into eternal separation from God. But for those who do go into eternal separation, they will receive justice. Justice means getting what we deserve. 
And when the Lord looks at what is recorded in the books about us, all that any of us deserve is His justice. The books would show that we're all guilty of sin. And because of that, what awaits us is eternal separation from God. Those are not my words. Those are the words of God. Those on His left, as Jesus describes in Matthew 25, are found guilty. And it says they're sent away into eternal separation. They're found guilty. Now, one thing you can say about this, if you are a goat and you go into eternal separation, the Bible does teach that there will be degrees of punishment. I don't know what all hell will unfold into being. Many different metaphors for hell, but it's all rooted in that idea of being shut out from the presence of God for all of eternity. And there's also the measure of just punishment for all of eternity. Some people say, well, we not after a while have been punished enough and Maybe then God would annihilate us, as some people want to say. Or can some person not uh, repent in hell and go through some purgatory and eventually make their way to heaven? That is not the picture the Bible presents. The Bible presents this picture, that when the goats go into eternal separation from God in the book of Revelation, they're like those people where John talks about when the wrath of God begins to be poured out upon man for his sin, that he curses the God of heaven. Even as he's gnawing his tongue. He still hates God. Men continue to sin in hell. Not repent. That's why hell is eternal. But in hell, there are going to be degrees of of punishment. Degrees of, of what people go through. That's what the Bible says in Luke chapter 12 and verses 47 and 48. I don't want to go through any of it myself. And I hope you don't either. But just for information's sake here, the scripture says in Luke 12, 47 and 48, and I don't have time to go and read John 19, 11, but you'll find the same idea there. The servant who knows the master's will and does not get ready or does not do what the master wants will be beaten with many blows, but the one who does not know and does things deserving punishment will be beaten with few blows. There's the differentiation there between punishment, even though all are separated and the goats from God. Now, why is this this way? Because we're all sinners. All of us will be condemned by what is found in the books. God's standard, if you and I want to live with Him, is we must be perfect. And none of us can give Him that perfection. That's why I say if He only gave us justice, we would all be goats. We're all sinners. And all those who are goats, there will be a greater severity in relationship to the amount of their sin. But then what about the sheep? This is the good news I want to end with today. The sheep, as Jesus calls them. These are the ones who go into eternal fellowship with the Lord. The sheep, too, stand before the Lord, and they deserve justice. I'm a sheep. With all my heart, I believe I'm a sheep. But I know in my sin, all I deserve is justice. I've sinned. But I won't receive justice, and neither will you if you prepare. You'll receive mercy and go into glory. How does this work? Well, back to Paul's message, of which we do not have all that is said. But he mentions a key thing as he's preaching to them. He says that now that Jesus has come and this day is coming, God commands all men everywhere to repent. That is, to change their minds about Jesus. To be willing to turn away from their sin. And if he completed his message, which he apparently did for some of the people who got saved, he would also say, you must repent of your sin 
and place your trust in Jesus Christ and what he did for you. Acts 20, 21, just a few chapters later, Paul says, I preached repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ to everybody all over the Roman Empire where I went. You see, the key thing that separates the sheep from the goats is how are you related to Jesus? Have you placed your full trust in him? This correlates to what we find in Revelation 20, verse 15, where it says, anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. Well, what happens to those written in the book of life? Well, their name is there. Those are the sheep. And it contains the names of those who have willingly turned from their sin and placed their faith in Jesus Christ. And so when we stand before Jesus as judge, and he judges justly, and we are sinners, how is it that we receive mercy as sheep? Well, it's all wrapped up in Jesus and what he has done for us. In the book of Romans, chapter 3, the Apostle Paul summarizes that for us. And I want to invite you to turn there in your Bible. This is one of the most important passages in all of the Bible. In Romans, chapter 3, in verse 21 following. This is a good place in your Bible for you to underline. This is a good place in your Bible for you to think about worship, for you to think about what Christianity is all about. This is a passage you really should know by heart. It should be deeply woven into your psyche. Revelation 3, verse 21, Paul says, But now, apart from the law, that is trying to live up to perfect standards, because we can't. Apart from the law, though, he says, The righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. That is, there is a way to be made right with God. This righteousness is given through what? Read it with me. Faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. Did you see that? This righteousness is what? Given. It is a gift. How? Through, not your works, but through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. And remember the judgment, it says that all of us will appear, the great and small. And Paul says there's no difference between Jew and Gentile. Great and small, anybody, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We all deserve justice. But look at verse 24, he says, and all are justified, what? Freely. Do you see that word? By his grace, that means gift, through the redemption, which means a purchase price. Something's been paid to redeem you, to buy you back. That came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement, or a satisfaction is the word you could put there, through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness, because in his forbearance, you remember Paul talked about God's patience, right? In the book of Acts. In his patience or forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time. And I want you to read the last part of this with me. You should underline this. You should know this. Read it. So as to be just. And the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. What is that saying? We do not receive justice when we placed our faith in Jesus. Because the judge before whom we stand is a scarred judge. He is the one who is not only judge. But in his great love for us, he was the sacrifice for us. And the justice that we deserve 
was poured out upon him willingly. So God has been a good judge and punished our sin. And now, when we place our faith in his son, he gives us the gift of forgiveness, of right standing, perfect standing, because not only has our sin been punished at the cross, but Jesus Christ, who never sinned, his righteousness, his standing, is credited to me. And so the judge that I stand before is scarred for me, and this judge also lived a sinless life for me, and he says, I confer that upon you if you have trusted in me. Friend, it's glorious to be a sheep. <laughs> it's awesome to belong to Jesus, to be saved from the wrath of God. And have you been saved? We're talking about being saved. What does it mean to be saved? People say, oh, I get saved, I ask Jesus in my heart. We need to be very careful with that language. If you need to understand what is being said in there in the right way, I'm asking Jesus in my life, into my heart, to forgive me of my sins, to apply what he's done for me so that I can have right standing with God. If you think of it as just saying a prayer of asking Jesus in your heart, divorced from the understanding of what Christ has done for you, that will not save you. Salvation is placing our trust in Jesus. And you know, when we have placed our trust in Jesus and we go before him as judge, what's going to take place for we sheep? Well, one thing is, in relationship to this, theologians debate, based upon particular texts, whether or not Don's sin is going to be brought up at the judgment seat of Jesus. Things I did before I was a Christian, things I've done since I was a Christian. Some theologians, based on texts like Psalm 103, verse 12, it says, as far as the east is from the west, he has separated our sins from us, and he will do what? Remember them no more. Other theologians point to these texts where Jesus says that we'll give an account for every idle word we speak, where Paul talks about we must appear before the judgment seat of Christ to receive uh, you know, for what we've done in the body, that our sins will be brought up. And I have uh, theologians I read that are conservative theologians on both sides of that issue. I want to say this, even if our sins are brought up, we who are sheep, we can rest in this, that... Uh, that all the attention will fall upon Jesus and his forgiveness and what he's done for me. If they are brought up, I think that there may be some disappointment. It'll be felt for what we have done, like in Jude chapter 24, where it talks about people being saved as though by fire and their clothes stinking in that sense. It's going to be like somebody that, you know, brings shame to the family name. You're still part of the family, you're still accepted in the family. But there is some measure of shame. I don't know whether it will be brought up or not, but the ultimate attention will be brought upon the glory of Jesus who has purchased me by his blood. And I can rest in that. And rest in the fact that Jude does say that he is able to present me faultless before his throne. And I'm so thankful that God through Jesus is able to present me faultless before the throne. And then... While we talked about there will be degrees of punishment for the goats, for those of us who are believers, there will be degrees of reward. Again, I don't have time to read all of it, but if you go back and read Matthew 25, verse 14, where he talks about the sheep, or Matthew 25, 14, where he talks about the bags of gold being given to uh, people to invest, the, the, the talents, one's given ten, one five, right? One is given one. 
And those who invested and made more, those who really served as they should, it says they'll be given more. So for a sheep, I go before the Lord and I'm accepted because of Christ who is my judge is also my Savior. If my sin is brought up, I'm presented faultless before the throne. Based upon what I have done since I've been a believer in serving Christ out of pure motives and the power of the Holy Spirit, there will be degrees of reward and placement in the coming economy of God. And as I think about this in my life, as I live here, it ought to motivate me in some particular ways. Knowing these things, we should be motivated in our lives as Christians in a couple of ways. One, if you go back to the book of 2 Peter chapter 3, where we read this morning in verses 11 through 14, we left off at verse 10. It says, since everything would be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives. As you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming, we ought to live godly lives And we also, as believers who are sheep, we ought to be motivated as God's people, as Paul was, to help people turn from ignorance to receive the gift of eternal life. I want to ask you, does the coming judgment, if you're a sheep this morning, is it motivating you to want to live a holy life so that someday before Jesus, you and I can hear what? Well, say it with me, well done, good and faithful servant. And is it motivating you to be concerned for people who are right now goats? who can still be saved? Are you motivated, this coming judgment, to witness, to invite people to hear the Word, to reach out to people who need Jesus? Are we as concerned about what happens to people on that coming day as we were concerned about how they would vote last Tuesday? Do we have that type of passion for people's eternal souls? The day, the day, the day, let us live in light of its sure coming. Let me ask you, on that day, Which side of Jesus are you going to be on? The right as a sheep or the left as a goat? There's only one way to be on his right. And as we've talked about this morning, you must receive him. Have you done that in your life? I mean, it's like this morning, you know, if I knew I was sick and I had a bottle of medicine sitting right here that my doctor had prescribed for me. I can sit here all day and talk about this is wonderful medicine. I think this will make me well, right? This is glorious medicine. But the only way this medicine is going to make me well is I have to make the decision to take it up and ingest it. And the only way you're going to be prepared for that day of judgment is that you take up Jesus Christ and apply Him to your life by faith. Trust what He's done for you, for your sins to be forgiven and for His righteousness to be credited to you. Have you done that? You know, if you've not taken that step, you don't have to walk down an aisle to do that. I'm not talking about being baptized. I'm talking about if you received the gift. You can call on him right now. I want to lead us in a prayer. And if you're here today and you have not crossed over the line and placed your trust in Jesus, applied the medicine, moved from being a goat to a sheep, there's no magic in a prayer. God doesn't care about the words come out of your mouth. He just cares about are you today going to trust my son as your Savior and your Lord? And if you're willing to do that, I'm just going to lead us in a prayer, and I ask you to take the categories in which I pray, and you can just silently there where you are affirm this to Jesus Christ, that you want him in your life right now, this moment, this day, in preparation for that day. Let's go to him. Father, I come before you. Thank you for creating me. Thank you for loving me.
You know and I admit that I have sinned. I deserve your justice and eternal separation. Lord, today I thank you that Jesus came and lived a sinless life and died on the cross for my sins and was buried and rose again. And this day I ask Jesus Christ to come into my life. I turn from my sin. I trust in Him. Lord, forgive me of all of my sins. Lord, give to me the gift of right standing through the perfection of Jesus. Take control of my life. Make me the person you want me to be. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, if you sincerely pray that, the scripture says that the angels in heaven rejoice when one sinner turns to the Lord in repentance. And I'm going to ask you today either to come share that with me or I'm going to have Chase Stone, one of our staff members back there, if you need to talk further about this, to take you and go into a prayer room back here and talk further about the decision that you have made. As a Christian this morning, I want to ask you as a believer, do you live in such a way in which you're living to where you want to hear job well done? And do you really believe about this day to the point that you're truly concerned for others in your witness and in your life? I challenge you as I challenge me today to think upon these things and let them be motivators. As we come to this time of commitment today as well, I encourage you if you are being led to be a part of this fellowship by a transfer of your letter or statement of faith that to follow Jesus in baptism. You may have been visiting here for a while. We invite you to come. We're going to sing just as I am. You respond as God so leads you. And I hope as we leave today, after we have thought about November the 8th as an important day, you'll never forget this coming day. That it will rule your thought and your mind and your heart and mine as well as we go forth. Let's stand to pray. Father, thank you now for this time we've had. Accomplish what you want in hearts. Help us make sure in light of your great love and your invitation Oh, Lord, what it is to stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene who loved us so much that he gave himself for us. God, I just pray that, Lord, you would help us all to have prepared ourselves for the day, that it will be a great day of rejoicing before you. Bless us now as we sing in Jesus' name.